This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at retiresecure.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, Hannah Haytanen Kay, and of course I'm here with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and best-selling author of the first and second edition of Retire Secure, and now his new book, The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Jim's guest tonight is Dan Goldie. Dan is a New York Times best-selling author of The Investment Answer, Learn to Manage Your Money and Protect Your Financial Future. He has been recognized by Barron's Magazine as one of the top 100 independent financial advisors in the United States. He has also appeared on ABC News, Fox Business News, National Public Radio, Yahoo Finance, and CBS Money Watch, and has been quoted extensively in top newspapers and journals. Tonight, we are going to talk about the five questions every investor needs to answer. And as Dan says, even if you stay the course and do nothing with your investment portfolio, you are inherently answering all of these five questions. But before I turn it over to Jim, I want to remind our listeners that the show is live, so please feel free to call in with your questions for Dan. The number is 412-333-9385. Again, that is 412-333-9385. Also, I want to mention that this is a special airing of the Lang Money Hour. Tonight, we are airing from 6 to 7, but we'll be returning to our regular time slot in January when you can listen to the program at its normal time every first and third Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. You can catch the show every Sunday morning as well at 9 a.m. right here on KQV. Good evening, Jim, and happy Hanukkah. Thank you. And welcome to the show, Dan. Thank, thank you to you both. I'm glad to be here. Dan, for, first, I, I loved your book. And, and by the way, if, if anybody didn't catch it, it, the name of the book is The Investment Answer by Daniel Goldie and Gordon Murray. I found it straightforward, relatively short, uh, very, very good information. But, but, Dan, you're not the only author on the book. Um, there is another author, Gordon Murray, and I understand there's a little story behind um, the book with you and Gordon Murray. Could you start by telling our listeners why you wrote this and what your involvement with Gordon Murray is? Well, we wrote this really because uh, Gordon, who um, unfortunately passed away this January of an uh, inoperable brain tumor, wanted to write a book that would be uh, very educational and informative to everyday investors. And he'd been wanting to do that for a long time. And when he would di- was diagnosed with his brain tumor, he was given about a year to live. And in that last year, actually turned out to be two years, in that time he devoted his entire life to giving back to others. And this project, this book project that we did together, was the last thing that he was able to do before he passed. So it was, it's really been a pleasure for me to have worked with him on that, and, and now I'm trying to carry on his wishes and keep the book alive and the information uh, available to all investors who are interested. Well, I think the book is both timely and classic, but, but you and Gordon came from different angles. Could you give a, a very brief background for you know where you came from and where Gordon came from and apparently ended up at the same conclusion. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Gordon spent 25 years working on Wall Street for the major three major Wall Street firms, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, and Credit Suisse and retired from Wall Street in 2001. And uh, he worked on the institutional side of the business, basically um, selling bonds to big pension funds and endowment funds and large institutional investors. And I, uh, after leaving the pro tennis tour in 1991, I started working on the individual investor side of the business as an independent financial advisor. So 
he came from the big institutional world. I came from the individual investor world, and we sort of met together uh, because we, we shared a common investment approach that we thought was right for most people. Well, I, I think you, you really hit the uh, <coughs> you, you hit the ball with the racket in your case. Um, and, and frankly, I, there's a part of me that wants to talk about the tennis tour, but I think it would probably be better if we got to some of the main points of the book and and one of them and i think it's a it's a really good question and it's 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 how you pretty much start the book is should you be a do-it-yourself investor now now i have a friend and he says hey you know i have a well diversified portfolio with vanguard i have really low fees why should i pay an investor any money what's should should somebody um and and in your ca- and in Gordon's case, here's Gordon, this guy who's been on Wall Street for 20 years, yet he was coming to you for financial advice and to invest his money. What is the advice that you would give to both sophisticated and unsophisticated listeners about should you do it? Should you be a do-it-yourselfer? Well, I think that it there there are good vehicles out there for do-it-yourself investors. Uh, Vanguard perhaps being the top of the list of, of good vehicles available, but not the only, the only uh, available option. Uh, but I think for most people, really should realize that um, if you look at the data on individual investors' success, uh, it doesn't look very attractive. Mo- most investors make a lot of mistakes, and one of the problems we have is that we're all human beings, and because of that, we make emotional decisions with our money, and oftentimes those emotional decisions turn out to be uh, against our best interests. Uh, for example, uh, in, in late 08, early 09, when markets were looking very, very terrible, and it looked like the world was going to end and the financial system might just completely lock up and freeze, uh, there were not many people who were uh, sticking around in the market to um, get a, a possible recovery, yet um, eventually that's what happened, is markets did come back in '09 and have been on the recovery mode since then, and some you know, large amounts of money out of individual, individual, individual investors pulled lots of money out of mutual funds, equity mutual funds, uh, ever since '08, continuing through today. And that's just part of our emotional makeup. We get we get scared when things go down, and we get overly enthusiastic when things go up, and so we end up buying high and selling low too often. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was particularly interesting that you make the point, and we've actually made this point several times um, this year. We've actually had behavioral financial experts on that, in effect, a Vanguard investor on their own does worse than Vanguard. Could you explain that, please? Well, that's because um, it's that it's the it's the idea that you you put money in and out of funds at the wrong time. So if you had just uh, bought the fund at the very beginning and held it all the way through, you would get the return that the fund delivered. But most people don't do that. They come in and out of the fund usually at the wrong time. They'll go in at higher prices and out at lower prices, uh, and that's why they end up getting lower returns. Yeah, I even think it's my—it's interesting that, that my buddy who says, "Oh, there's no need to pay a financial guy," you know, I'll just do it all myself. And then I said, "Oh, by the way, what happened? You know, when the uh, technology stocks were really taken off?" He said, "Oh, I put a lot of money in technology." I said, "Well, did you lose a lot of money?" "Oh, yeah, I lost a lot of money." And I was thinking, well, maybe if if he had been with somebody who was a little bit more sound. Uh, a little bit more objective, maybe he wouldn't have done that. Because you talk about a couple things. One, you talk about what you call the herd mentality. But I'll tell you the thing that that I thought would was even more interesting. Um, you talk about the fear of regret. Could you explain the fear of regret and how that influences what we do in our behavior with regards to investing? Well, this is the fear of uh, making a mistake and regretting it later. <laughs> Or, or taking a course of action and, and, re, and having it not work out for you, and, which could just be a random event, and you, you think that uh, you know, it was your fault for, for doing, making the wrong choice. 
uh, it's just inherent in all human beings that we we have that, and so it, it tends to make us uh, either freeze and not make decisions at all, or or end up making the wrong decision. So so literally, it's the fear of making a mistake that causes cause us in effect to do nothing or to do something or to do something when we should do nothing and to do something nothing when we should do something is there is there any kind of rule of thumb on that because i actually thought that that was really somewhat profound that that the fear of doing something wrong makes us do something wrong (laughs) yes uh yeah, I don't really know how to explain it further. Um. <laughs> okay, well, well I, 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 think, I think the listeners have the idea, which is that you're, you're kind of so afraid of doing something wrong in a way you maybe become too conservative um, at a certain point. So, for example, you think, oh, my goodness, I'm, I can't lose any more money. I have to get out of the market, like you said, with, at the bottom in 2008. And then after the market rebounds, you think, "Oh no, I'm, you know, I missed that huge rebound. I better get in before, before it, uh, in case I miss another great rise." And and they end up missing both. Um, the other thing, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes from that chapter is, um, "Our view is that the right time to invest is when you have the money." And the right time to sell is when you need the money. Right. Could, could you explain that? Because I think that that's, that's an interesting thing. Because a lot of times people say, hey, I, you know, I, I just made 30%. I want to sell half of it and then leave the other half here. And, and you're saying, hey, that's not the way to determine when you should buy or sell. Well, I think a, a lot of these decisions come down to um, the way our brains are hardwired and a lot of this... Um, idea that uh, uh, the neuroeconomics approach to, to thinking about things uh, shows us that we don't really think logically about a lot of our money decisions. And so like what you said, someone, someone makes a profit on an investment, and uh, one idea is, well, I'll take my initial investment off the table, and that way I, I know I've at least covered my investment, and then I'll let the rest ride. Um, there's a lot of sort of rules of thumb and things like that 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 people follow that don't make, I don't think, a lot of investment logic. So to me, the bottom line is that, that markets, um, if you can capture market returns over a long period of time, you're going to be ahead of the game. And to do that, the best way would be to uh, invest your money in the markets as soon as you have it and leave it in there until you need it and then take it out. And it's as simple as that. Is you, you invest when you have the money, and you take the money out when you need to spend it, and don't monkey around with it in between. Well, well let me take it a step further. And to simplify, I want to take the tax issue off the table. So let's say that, that you have investments in an IRA or a qualified plan. So buying and selling um, has no tax implications. And let's, for discussion's sake... Let's even really simplify it and say that there aren't any buying or selling expenses, which I know isn't true. Does it make any difference what you paid for an investment to determine whether you should sell it or not? No. Shouldn't. All right. But by, by the way, I happen to agree with you, but not a lot of people do. <laughs> and, and I think that that's really a good, a good point because in some of my reviews, um, one of the criticisms – that I received was that I wasn't advocating a sale on an investment that did well. And then later it did go down in value. And the criticism was, hey, it, it did really well. You know, you, sh- you should have just taken your profits or at least half the profits and sell half, but you didn't. And what you're saying is other than taxes or maybe costs, it really doesn't matter what you paid for it to determine when you should sell it. Well, I think it. Ma- I think I think the distinction is that we're we're talking about broad market investments in our book, and we're not talking about individual stocks or things like that. 
And with a broad market portfolio type of approach, then um, you know, you're going to you really you just should stay invested to cut your taxes and your costs and capture the market's return over the long run. Um, and another way to think about it is you know the, the the market doesn't care when you bought or what price you bought in. No, it just doesn't. It doesn't make any difference. Markets are going to do what they're going to do, independent of when you came in or, or, or what price you paid. So it's irrelevant. Yeah, and another thing that you talk about, you you give a couple guidelines about choosing an investment advisor, and you gave some things that were kind of standard. You know what their background is, what their credentials are, etc. But one of the things that I'm that I'm very big on talking about. In fact, we've actually had. Um, an expert who spent an entire hour on this on this whole issue is talking about fiduciary duty, and you said that your broker's first duty is to his firm, not to you, even though you're his customer. Now, I think a lot of people assume that a stockbroker or a, a financial advisor or um, a an insurance agent. Um, has their best interest in mind, but from what I can see that you're writing is that a broker legally doesn't have to have your interest in mind, that is, doesn't have to have the customer's best interest, but he actually has to have the firm that he's worked for. He owes them a fiduciary duty. Could you talk about the importance of the fiduciary duty and who who your financial professional should be answering to? Well, I think a, a broker, when they're working in the capacity of a broker-dealer, as opposed to a registered investment advisor, uh, when they're working as a broker-dealer, then their job is to sell security. And so they're a uh, representative of the firm, and um, they're their only requirement to the client is that the securities be appropriate for the client. They don't have to put the client's uh, interest first as in a fiduciary, a pure fiduciary relationship. And so um, I believe that's the, the legal definition of it is that the, the, the brokers will uh, are required to make sure that the investments are suitable, quote unquote. Uh, so I, we just think that to, to, to make things uh, in the best interest of investors, investors should be looking for someone who's truly independent and who is required by law to put their interests first. And that would be a, a registered investment advisor who's uh, you know, a truly independent advisor and only gets compensation from their clients, not from other sources. Well, I, I think that's true. I also think it is very good for clients to understand how their advisor is being compensated. And, you know, I, I hear people say, oh, well... I'm getting this done for free. Well, nobody works for free. And I think it's really good to hear exactly how people are, are compensated. And I happen to agree with you um, that the way to go is a fee-only registered investment advisor. Now, I, that might sound self-serving because I am a fee-only registered <laughs> investor investment advisor. Um, and I'm also a CPA and an attorney, which, by the way, has the same fiduciary duty as both a CPA and an attorney, I am required to put the client's best interest ahead of anybody that I might be working with or associated with. It's the client's best interest that, that comes first. Um, I think sometimes attorneys overdo that and get themselves and their clients in trouble, but I think the, the important thing is, is that you want to be working with somebody who has both a legal and a moral obligation to put your interest, that is the client's interest, ahead of their own and ahead of the company that they're working for. Right. Oh. That's true. Okay. Gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we'll continue talking about the five questions every investor needs to answer. And I want to remind our listeners out there that we are live tonight. So if you have any questions, you can give us a call at 412-333-9385. We'll be right back with Dan Goldie, co-author of The Investment Answer, Learn to manage your money and protect your financial future with Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour. 
the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Hayten and Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and Dan Goldie. So, Dan, and, and by the way, if anybody's keeping score, we, we've only really covered the, the, the first answer of, of investment answers, should you do it yourself. Um, the next one that you talk about is asset allocation. So I guess what you're going to do now is to, t- is to tell our listeners the best way to get really high returns with very low risk. Is, is that what, can you do that, Dan? That's, that's, what well, our, that's, what our, that's what our listeners want, really high returns and really low risk. We, we would all like that. Unfortunately, <laughs> in the real world, I don't think that uh, that's, you're going to find that very often. Um, you know, securities are priced pretty efficiently, and so what comes with uh, higher return, of course, is higher risk. And if you want uh, lower risk, you, you're going to have to accept lower expected return. But the asset allocation decision is, you know, how you divvy up your money across the major asset classes that we're defining as stocks, bonds, and cash. And what we have found is that most investors over time will kind of collect investments, and they won't really know what their allocation is at any given time. It's just a function of things that they've collected over their lives, and and that's their how their money is allocated. And so we're advocating that people pay attention to their allocation and actually have a plan ahead of time as to, well, what percentage of my money should I have in stocks versus fixed income, bonds and cash, as that really will determine the vast majority of their future uh, rate of return and the risk level going forward. So that percentage of the money you put in stocks, that really is a very, very important decision. Well, I, I think it's key, and I think that what you put, what you pointed out, and I've phrased it a little bit differently. The way the way I the way I've typically phrased it is, most people's financial situation, and by the way, including legal accounting and tax, but just for our purposes, investments, is not the result of a well thought out investment strategy, but it is rather the result of, of a bunch of individual decisions made in isolation, all of which seem to make sense at the time that they made them, but they're not working together, and what you don't have is a well-diversified well portfolio with appropriate asset allocation. So uh, I, I think that's an enormous problem, and I think it's even more uh, widespread when people have a variety of investment houses or investment vehicles. So, for example, my, people might say, well, hey, I have some in Vanguard and I have some in Fidelity and I have some in T. Rowe Price. Um, and then if you actually kind of look under the hood, they might have large cap mutual funds in all of them. So it turns out they're not very well diversified at all. Well, it's true. In fact, a lot of times what, you can, what you'll find with portfolios is when you have the money spread out across a, different, a bunch of different mutual funds managed by different entities, uh, there's a lot of cross-holdings. A lot of the same, the same stocks will appear in, in different funds, and you'll actually own the same stocks multiple times across your portfolio, or you'll have the same asset classes in your portfolio in different funds. And it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to know exactly how your money's allocated across all these different areas because you can't really aggregate together and, and mathematically calculate your allocation when it's divvied up you know, so, so, so completely like that. Well, I think one of the problems, at least in, that I have experienced, is sometimes clients are so afraid that the advisor is going to overreach and try to manage all their assets that they don't tell them about other assets that they have. So you have independent money managers, you know, it's kind of like going to a doctor, one doctor for your right arm and one doctor for your left arm, and the doctors don't talk to each other, and they're giving conflicting or 
or worse yet, the same medicine, so the client's taking it twice. And I thought I sometimes think that does happen in the investment world. And what what I what I tell people is, hey, if you don't want to give, um, if you don't want to give our the combination of our firm and one of the money managers that we work with all your money, that's fine. But tell us where your other money is, so somebody, and preferably us, can make sure that your overall portfolio is appropriately diversified and has proper asset allocation. Yes, I agree. It's important for for the the end investor to make sure that the advisor they're working with knows about all the assets, just for exactly the reason you're stating, so that decisions can be made encompassing all of the uh, information so that, that a smart choice can be made. And now, if, if if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about two points that are not in your book on asset allocation. Because, again, and, and, and by the way, for our listeners, um, both Dan and I are registered investment advisors, and we both, you know, actually do this. Um, I, I also do uh, retirement estate planning as an estate attorney and CPA doing tax returns and Roth IRA conversions. But both Dan and I are assets under management uh, registered investment advisors. So these are some real-life situations that we deal with. One of the ones that I deal with is I have a fair amount of older, relatively wealthy clients that have, let's call it a Depression-era mentality or whatever you might want to um, call it, so that they're not great spenders relative to the amount of money that they have. And the way they are diversified you know, might even be on a tr- on a traditional scale and a comfort level appropriate for them. But the reality of it is, is it based on how much money they have and how much money they're spending? The reality is, is that much of that money would is ultimately going to go to children. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it is appropriate, and I sometimes bring this up, to have an effect two different portfolios if you will let's let's just say for discussion's sake you have a a couple that has a million dollars no better yet two million dollars and uh and they figure that between their social security and their pension even the most conservative withdrawal rate on one million dollars is more than enough to meet their their needs does it make sense to invest that second million dollars not as say people in their 70s or 80s that have a shorter investment horizon but people the ages of their children that might be in their 30s or 40s or even grandchildren um, who might be quite young do you ever run into that issue and do you ever address that i've run into that a few times i've never thought of splitting the money up like you're describing Um, but i have i do have some clients who are very conservative with the amount of money they're spending and um, I try to approach that by educating them and letting them know that you know they are being very conservative and they're doing it by choice and it makes them feel safe and they feel good about it. So it's not I don't see it as being a problem. I mean they understand that they're potentially leaving income on the table that they could be spending and they understand that money will go to their heirs. Um, but okay. I don't I don't particularly see that as a problem. I think it's just a, an individual choice. Yeah, sure, and and I guess what I I try to do is I try to I try to point out, hey, maybe maybe with at least por- a portion of your money, you can be a little bit more as a long term investor, um, which might be uh, a little bit more in, in in stocks as opposed to bonds. Um, the other issue that I sometimes run into is I have a lot of clients with some traditional pensions. Um, whether they be mid-level managers, uh, some people at Westinghouse, um, a, a lot of teachers, for example, have have a traditional uh, defined benefit p- pension where they're getting X dollars a month for the rest of their life or X dollars a month for the rest of their lives and their spouse's lives. And let's say somebody's getting a fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 pension or, or even a smaller one. And by the way, to a lesser extent... I would say the same thing is true of Social Security. Do you ever look at that money as kind of like, a, in effect, a bond equivalent? Yes. 
and you might you might have a different recommended asset allocation for somebody with a pension and social security versus somebody who has no pension and maybe a minimal social security yes i think that's a great point that that comes up quite regularly uh in my practice where um someone has a defined benefit pension plan or or some sort of old style plan where they're getting a fixed payment for life and that equates to a giant bond and we can calculate the present value of that bond and assume that that present value amount is invested in fixed income and then build the portfolio around that so that their actual investment portfolio would be more allocated to stocks than would otherwise be the case because they've got that guaranteed cash flow coming, they can afford to do that. And it enables them to be positioned for higher returns with uh, all of their money and and just have all the money more appropriately allocated. Otherwise, they'd be invested too conservatively. Yeah, I I, I agree with you there. Um, If we can move on to the issue of diversification. By the way, I should mention that your book has some testimonials from literally the top Asset allocation and diversification experts. We're talking about uh, Gene Fama, uh, Ken French, um, Harry Markowitz. Uh, these might not; these names might not be familiar to a lot of our listeners, but to the financial advisors. And I know we have a lot of financial advisors listening. I know that that these names are are familiar. Harry, Harry Markowitz might be considered the uh, father of modern portfolio theory. So. Um, could you tell us about the benefits of diversification and how has that worked in practice, somebody being well-diversified, if you will? Well, what we're calling the diversification decision is really uh, the next cut down from broad allocation. So we're saying so within the stock market allocation that you've chosen, if you've chosen to put in 60% of your money in stocks, well, which equity asset classes do you choose? And so there we would want to look at uh, real estate, foreign stocks, domestic stocks, small companies, value companies, all the different potential asset classes of equities that you would uh, put your money in. And the same thing with fixed income. Um, And doing it in a smart way. And our belief is that if you... Uh, diversify well across these asset classes that over the long run they're not going to correlate perfectly so you will get some diversification benefits and that will have some risk reduction uh, to it and some possible return enhancement uh, particularly from the small cap and value stocks which historically have outperformed broader markets so the the knock on diversification that uh, some people uh, will we'll say is that, well, diversification is all well and good, but when markets really turn south badly, like they did in 08 and 09, all the asset classes go down together. All the equity asset classes go down together. And that is true, and that's been the case for a long, long time. In fact, in 73 and 74, the same thing happened. All the equity classes went down during that downturn. Um, so diversification does not say that it protects you on the downside during those extreme downward movements. That's why you have fixed income in your portfolio. But over full market cycles, I think there is a mathematical advantage to being well diversified across these categories. You you brought up a point that you kind of glossed over that I think uh, bears closer examination. You said that historically value has done better than growth and small cap has done better than large cap. Can you, uh, let's say, expand on those thoughts? Because I think there's a lot of people who kind of think that the market, if you will, and specifically even the domestic market, not even talking about international, is the S&P 500. And you're saying, wait, 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 there's some divisions within the uh, stock market and the large cap growth, which is what most of the S&P 500 is, is not necessarily uh, the historically best performing asset class. Well, if you take all of the, the stocks 
that trade, say, in the United States, and you were to divvy them up by risk factor, uh, what the evidence is that I've seen is that um, there are two additional risk factors other than the stock market, o- stock market's overall risk that are at play that, that um, determine risk and return. And one of those r- additional risk factors is company size. And this seems rather intuitive to most people, which is that smaller companies are more risky than bigger companies. They're more susceptible to economic downturns. They don't have large financial uh, support like a big company does. Um, so they, they would naturally seem to be inherently more risky. Certainly the stock price volatility is greater, just mathematically. So smaller companies uh, being more risky than large companies, that, that seems intuitively clear to most people. And so uh, my view is that smaller companies, because they're more risky, they should be priced by the market on average to get higher returns. And if you look back historically over long periods of time, you see pretty consistently that small companies do deliver higher returns than big companies. Yeah. Um, and the same thing for value stocks. This is another risk factor that's not so obvious, but a value company the way the academics would define it is these are companies that have low stock prices relative to earnings and book value and sales and other measures of valuation. And the reason that these companies have these low stock prices is because they're in some sort of distress. And so uh, they're inherently more risky because they're struggling for some reason. The stock market knows it and prices them low. And at that moment, when they're priced low and they're in distress, they are more risky and therefore from that point going forward, they should have higher expected returns as a group than the market. And um, what studies have shown, though, is that only a small percentage of these small cap and value companies uh, actually capture these higher returns, and they do so in such a magnificent way that it lifts the average of the whole group up. So if you invest in small cap and value stocks, you should expect more volatility, more risk, but higher average returns over longer periods of time. When we come back, we'll continue this enlightening conversation with Dan Goldie and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. We still have some time for a call or two, so feel free to call in with your questions for Dan Goldie. The number is 412-333-9385. before we leave the the question of asset allocation, um, and Dan, I know that that one of the groups of, of funds that you work with are di- are the dimensional funds. Um, do they, or are there other mutual funds that tend to favor some of the asset classes that you have been talking about that have performed better over a period of time? So, are are there is there something? You, either unique about dimensional funds or other funds that, that do tend to favor some of these classes that have done better, such as small cap and value? Well, dimensional funds, uh, are the, I mean, those, those are the funds that I know very well, and those are um, many of those funds are designed specifically to capture the small cap and value premiums and, and tilt the portfolios towards small cap and value, both in the U.S. and in the international markets as well as the emerging markets. So um, they certainly uh, offer investors the, the ability to tilt the portfolios to those uh, more risky but higher returning areas. And, and is um, that – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so go ahead. Is, is that the way that, that, you know, sometimes people are pretty skeptical and they say, hey, dimensional funds are really a – a passive approach, and we're going to get into passive versus active in a few minutes. Um, but there's still basically an index approach. How can an index approach beat the index? Is that one of the ways they do it through um, a, a slightly different asset allocation recommendation? Well, an index fund is um, 
a plain vanilla index fund is, is basically going to track a third-party benchmark, like a, the Standard & Poor's 500 index will hold the 500 stocks and the S&P index in the exact proportion of the index. And a firm like Dimensional uh, will not do that. They will um, hold stocks in, in differing proportions um, depending on uh, the efficiency of trading and, and the different stocks at different times and so forth. So they, they try to take a, a passive approach, meaning a no-forecasting approach, but they don't uh, make themselves a slave to a third-party index. They think that um, that enables them to be more uh, patient and effective traders, and uh, there's other advantages that they believe brings comes to the table with without having to um, mirror an index and, and reconstitute to the index and, and those types of things. But you're getting very specific when you talk about all that stuff. Okay. All right. Well, then maybe we'll just go. We'll go back a step a little bit and talk about the difference between uh, passive money management and active money management, and what has historically worked better. Well, my view for for most individual investors, I think that um, the evidence is pretty clear that really um, trying to beat the market either by trying to select stocks yourself or trying to find that mutual fund or investment manager that's going to you know be the market beating person is is the odds are against you i think when you're when you're trying to do that the costs are certainly not on your side and um, the evidence is pretty clear that the vast majority of professional investors underperform their benchmarks on average over longer time periods and so i think a smart individual investor looks at that and says well you know i'm going to put the odds on my on my side and um, take a more passive approach. So using either index funds or some sort of passive vehicle where, in essence, what you're trying to do is capture the returns that markets make available to you over a long period of time. And if you can do that, you're probably going to outperform the vast majority of all other investors because most people are not following that low-cost passive route and their, their expenses are higher and their mistakes are greater and um, they're going to end up with lower returns in the long run. Um, and, and, and by the way, I should I should also uh, mention I'm kind of a hybrid because I actually work with both passive money managers and, and specifically um, with dimensional funds and um, a, a specific dimensional fund advisor, PJ Genuzzo, um, who I think does a great job. And I also work with active money managers um, who I think are the exception to, to the rule that you're talking about. Um, so... Um, I, I don't. I don't want to agree with you a hundred percent because I do think there are some active money managers who who do add value. But um, so I think we've hit four of the investment answers. And but I do want to get to one more before we wrap up, and then have a few other closing comments and a few other questions that might not be specific to the uh, five answers, if you will. But the other one was when should you buy and sell assets in your portfolio? Maybe we touched on this a little bit earlier, but but I think that that was one of the uh, that was one of your answers when you should buy and sell assets in your portfolio. Yeah, so here we're talking uh, about rebalancing a portfolio. So what we're recommending investors do is um, figure out uh, all of these decisions and and what their portfolio allocation targets are. And once you know those targets, then of course markets will move your your money uh, up and down as markets fluctuate over time and periodically then you'll need to rebalance your portfolio back to your original target so for example if you started out with twenty percent of your money in large value stocks and large value stocks have a good few months and now you have say twenty five percent of your money in large value because it's outperformed other asset classes in your portfolio, then it might be time to taper that back some, sell some large value, and buy something else. And it, so that rebalancing decision, it sounds simple, but it really is quite hard to do in practice because our emotions tell us to buy what has done well recently, to buy more of it. <laughs> and rebalancing has you doing the opposite. So rebalancing on average, we'll have you selling when things are high 
and buying when things are low. And uh, that's what you want to be doing. And emotionally, that's the exact opposite. Because in 2008, after you just lost your shirt, your emotion says, get the heck out of here. Where, that's right. Where rebalancing would say, hey, put more money into the market where you just lost your shirt, not not pull money out. And likewise, when you're feeling great and the market's good and you're saying, hey, I think I can put in a little bit more money in the market – you're saying the rebalancing, assuming you're going to stick with your asset, your original asset allocation plan, would be to, in effect, sell things that have just done well. That's right. It, it's counterintuitive uh, in many ways, and it's very difficult. That 08-09 period in particular, in the end of 08 to, through the early part of 09, when the market was bottoming out there and we were really under a lot of distress. Uh, I know in my firm we did a number of rebalancing cycles through there where we bought equity funds for clients and that was that was very difficult but it turned out to work out well yeah how, how often do you rebalance well what we do here is we look at portfolios every six weeks and we have uh, parameters around the target percentages so we allow some movement up and down so the rebalancing doesn't happen every six weeks it happens about once or twice a year but we do review portfolios often so that we can catch um, any any times that, that markets may be out of alignment. So yeah. And could you distinguish between rebalancing and timing? Well, rebalancing is not um, – well, timing I, I view as, as a forecasting method. So timing is, uh, well, you're, you're going to make changes based on what you think is going to happen in the future. And rebalancing is merely – uh, adjusting the portfolio to what has occurred in the past with no anticipation of the future. All right. And uh, finally, you have a little section on the alternative investments because it seems to me that if, if, if you we're really going to be really well a- asset well allocated, that we should want as many asset classes as we can. Um, why not gold? Why not uh, some of the hedge funds. Um, why not some of some commodities, for example? Why shouldn't some of these asset classes, where people, at least some people, at some times have made money, why would that not add greater diversification and enhance a portfolio? Well, um, the, the 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 point of view that Gordon and I have on that is that those alternative asset classes like the ones you mentioned just aren't necessary. Uh, some of those are already sort of included in a, in a broadly diversified portfolio. Like you, you'd have gold mining companies in your diversified portfolio if you take this approach, for example, and other commodity operating companies would be in the portfolio already. So you know, if, you're, if you're buying these metals or, uh, on the side, then you're, you're really, in our view, you're speculating because uh, these metals basically are, they're not operating companies. They're, they don't pay dividends or interest. They're, they're just metals. And um, the long-run expected return of the metal should be the rate of inflation. And so we just don't think that um, that's really a necessary part of a well-diversified portfolio. I mean, if you wanted to do it, we would say keep, keep the amount small. Uh, but I would say really it's not necessary. And with hedge funds and these types of... Um, more exotic alternatives. I just think that um, they're they're so expensive, and the really good ones are just not uh, accessible to the average investor. Uh, it seems to me that that's not something that the average investor should be messing around with. And same thing with private equity. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting. Some one of one of the money managers that that I work with, a guy named Charlie Smith at Fort Pitt Capital. Uh, says don't invest in gold, invest in mining companies. So if gold does well, you will do well, but you are still investing in a live company, just like you mentioned, that is out to try to make a profit and pay dividends and add add value um, to the investor. So from that standpoint... Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah, so what, what, what you're saying, I think, um, makes a lot of sense. Um before, by the way, we only have a few minutes left. Um, I just want to make 
I, I just want to tell people again, I found one of the nice things um, <laughs> as, a, as a radio host, I like to read the book of my guest. And, you know, sometimes uh, as one example, Jane Bryan Quinn was on and her, her book, uh, which was a very good book, by the way, but it was about 800 pages. <laughs> and it was pretty tough to get through. Uh, yours, on the other hand, is uh, much shorter. It looks like it's about 85 pages. That, that even includes some of the indexes. So it's uh, really about 70 pages and not even 70 big pages. So it's a relatively short read. I think most people could probably read it in one sitting. It is called The Investment Answer by Daniel Goldie and Gordon Murray. Um, Dan, would you recommend that people get it at, at Amazon, or should they go to your website to get it? Uh, the book is not available through my website, so okay. yeah, you can go to Amazon or any of the online bookstores or most of the physical bookstores would have the book. All right. Well, again, I'm, 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 I'm going to recommend the book. Um, do you have any uh, last thoughts for our listeners regarding anything that we've said or even anything that we haven't said? Oh, I just like oh, maybe just to say, um, you know, have faith in America and invest in America. Um, I think that you know, there's so much pessimism that I hear on the airwaves now that um, I think we run the risk of uh, scaring a whole generation of investors away from uh, a proper investment strategy. And uh, I see so much money flowing into ultra-conservative investments, my worry is that we're going to have a whole generation of people that get very low returns on their money, and I, I believe that uh, equity investments and broadly diversified portfolios will uh, give the returns that people need, and I, I want people to have faith that uh, that way of investing will work over the long run. And even in today's volatile market, you know, I have clients on both sides of the political fence saying, oh, this is really a mess. Uh, the United States is going to have a horrible future. I should just put my money in cash or gold or whatever. But you're saying, no, have faith. Uh, let the system work and have a well-diversified portfolio with low cost, passively managed. Is that, is that a fair summary? Essentially, yes. I mean, I think markets reflect the fact, I mean, markets reflect the fact that there's a lot of concerns out there. And uh, historically, those have been good times to buy. And I don't see why this would be any different. Okay, well, I think this is a great way to wrap up 2011, hearing that we should have faith in America and continue to invest in it. I want to thank you for that, Dan, and thank you for being our guest tonight. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for another Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at retiresecure.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732. That's 412-521-2732. And reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Again, that's 412-521-2732.